Hello and welcome to part 5 of My name is Anki Host and at the age of 19 I joined the Hare Krishnas. Today's theme is gurus and love. For many of us for whom material things, power or social constraints don't matter so much because we gave them up in order to join the Hare Krishnas, love is the thing that keeps us in the cult. So let's first of all talk about the history of the Hare Krishnas and their gurus. The Hare Krishna movement used to be a very uniform cult when the founder was still around. It did what he wanted and you either fitted in or you were out. You either kissed his ours or you weren't a member. There were no rebels. You just left. You had to. You were in or you were out. You were part of the machinery or not. And if you left, then nobody who was still part of it would deal with you again. Then, a pa- then he passed away and the people he put in charge took over. And because he wasn't very intellectual, really, or interested in the truth, or really did he have much of a conscience, he surrounded himself with sycophants, with absolute yes-men, he put 11 Zonal Gurus in charge of people's entire lives after his death and the obvious happened. They all did horribly and Iskon was soon unrecognisable from one zone to the next. The zones were had strict geographical boundaries and they all looked very different to each other. All these guys were bad on a sliding scale. And the worst was Kirtanananda, who inherited the huge, glamorous palace of gold they had built for the Swami in rural West Virginia. At the end of his reign, two people were dead and lots of lives were destroyed. A quote from Wikipedia about this. In 1990, the US federal government indicted Kirtanananda on five counts of racketeering, six counts of mail fraud, in conspiracy to murder two of his opponents in the Hare Krishna movement, Stephen Bryant and Charles St. Dennis. The government claimed that he had illegally amassed a profit of more than $10.5 million over four years. It also charged that he had ordered the killings because the victims had threatened to reveal his sexual abuse of minors. End quote. In Germany, we had Hansa Dutta, who financed the proud opening of a castle, Schloss Rettershof, as a temple, with money from drug dealings, and who got arrested for possession of illegal weapons in 1980, and expelled from Iskon eventually in 1983. Even that delay of three years sounds great, doesn't it? There are a huge amount of stories like these, and many books have been written about the Hare Krishnas from a critical point of view, have focused on them. But while there is a lot of stuff like this, I really want to look at what this does to normal people. More recently, there has been a feud uh, between one of the last of the 11 originals still around and the people who run the organization now, the Governing Body Commission. And this Swami, he came up with his own image of what he wants to look like as a guru. And it's basically wearing normal clothes and eating normal food 
and everything else he wants to be the same. He still wants to sit on thrones and be listened to like an absolute truth teller. And it looks really funny when he's wearing a flower garland with a suit, but never mind that. Uh, there's, uh, again, links to interesting uh, letters from him and other people in, in the description. And what the little people have to decide when they see, they see this stuff is what, what do I really stand for? Like the big guys don't don't care. They don't have a conscience. They are there because I don't have a conscience. They don't suffer. They are absolutely sure, absolutely certain that they're in the right place. And if they were wrong before, then they're right now. Here's a quote from a letter that this, this uh, particular Swami wrote. About two and a half years ago, after many months of intense prayers to Prabhupada and Krishna, urging them to show me how I could best help Prabhupada's mission to advance. I became convinced, and still am convinced, that Krishna engaged me in spreading the ideas of Krishna West. In the Bhagavad Gita, 1848, Lord Krishna states, One must not give up one's natural duty, even if performed imperfectly. Every endeavor in this world has some fault just as fire is covered by smoke. Of course, the idea here is that despite the unpleasant smoke, one must still use fire, and similarly, one must still performs, f- perform one's duty, despite one's imperfections and the limitations of this world. So he is absolutely sure that he has been put there to do exactly what he is doing, which is wear suits, not orange robes and wear his hair normally and deal with people normally rather than in this very detached ways that uh, monks are supposed to and that includes women so he has been seen to play uh, badminton with people and he has been seen to talk to people normally and that's been a huge problem in that whole organization because he's one of their main intellectuals. And you can watch their fights and you can watch uh, their their attempts to establish themselves as better than everybody else. And, okay, so it's not a huge scandal like when somebody left, but it still is something that affects everyone else. And, And how this affects the people that just try to be good and try to be good in the sense of being a Hare Krishna. That's what I'm interested in. Because even if, hypothetically, even if I hadn't stopped believing in the uh, philosophy, I would still say this, that we know that everyone in, in a position of control, position of authority, has done more or less um, illegal things. 
That's just how that movement, they just don't care about the law. That's just a fact. And even if the illegal thing is only, has only to do with money and um, how, they've made, how they've raised money, that's the slightest way for them to be criminals. But you know, obviously they've been, there have been murders. I mean, here in the UK, somebody got killed. Um, Swami actually, I think it was Jayatirtha, because one of their followers didn't believe in them anymore, and then he, I think, cut his head off with a sword or something. So people are very, it's a cult, so people are very sure of themselves, and then other people follow them. And these regular people who are in this organization with their heart and soul, and who have nothing else in their lives, they are the ones who are in trouble by all of this. And they might be completely free of any fault. And it's not just the frequent huge scandals that make their lives difficult. They make these choices every day. Okay, who's, who is the perfect person? I should follow them. If they are less than perfect, are they fallen? Do I need to turn away from them? Or should I still follow them? Can I follow these rules? If I don't follow these rules... Can I agree, can I, can I make it okay for me to pretend to follow those rules? How much is okay for me? And then if any, any answer is in the negative, no, this is not okay. Well, is this not okay to the degree where I have to leave my entire life behind and start afresh? And that is a huge choice because you're really leaving everything. You're not just leaving all your friends, sometimes family members, the entire world that you know. You also leave your idea of yourself behind. That is a huge, huge choice that these people have to make every day to either stick with it or not. And it's really strange nowadays because it used to be that you wouldn't see that choice so clearly because the people who left left you they left they 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 left your life you didn't have anything to do with them anymore so all you see all you saw were people who stuck with it and the the staff turnover was something that was just part of it because people would leave and then they would be out of your life. And it, you would expect, expect that. But now with social media, we're still in each other's lives. And I know what that does to me. It's, it's very upsetting when you see how they justify some kind of instructions like all scientists are bad or the regular world is bad. Even though we're on Facebook together, they still... So the people who answer any of those questions and the negative and who, who leave... What do they have? They don't have to believe in themselves anymore because that's systematically removed from your psyche when you follow the process, right? And it's not really your fault that things went wrong. It's your authority who's done bad things. So they very often band together and then start a new temple because they still believe that the founder was perfect. And then they start programs again and the whole process starts again. And people join because absolute certainty is, is so very, very attractive in today's uncertain world. 
it's a good feeling when you think that you're pure and everybody else is contaminated. But sadly, it, it really doesn't do much for our humanity. So much for that kind of history. I also really want to talk about my own history again. And because by the time I joined, all of that was already had passed. Things were stable. My guru was one of the third generation who were young and quite well adjusted. And in my guru's case, quite intelligent and intellectual and calm and wonderful and very attractive to me because he had a wonderful voice, still does. Yeah, in many ways, he was very attractive. And that's not a bad thing, is it? He had been made a guru in 1987. And the zonal guru for Northern Europe and Germany, he was still doing well at the time. But he left 10 years later. Hari Kesha Swami Vishnupad. It's psychologically, he was probably in trouble already, but because he was so insulated from everybody who would ever, ever, you know, remark on that. He was, you know, obviously, again, because it's the pattern, he's surrounded by himself with complete sycophants and people who could absolutely be trusted. So he chose a few senior guys to help him with a flood of new disciples, especially from East Europe. And when I met my guru for the first time, he was 40, I think. And... Yeah, this putting these, these young guns in charge really worked. So I, I picked him and the other young women that we built a Cologne temple together, they picked the other two young guys. And I was totally devoted to him. I learned to play music by listening to his tapes. I learned the philosophy by listening to his lectures. Even when I was out, I had a Walkman and wrote letters to him every day in my diary and sometimes sent him letters when I felt I had something to say. And I felt taken seriously because I got a letter in response once in a while. And I got initiated in 1991, which is the time when you get your spiritual name, whatever Sanskrit is. It was Anuradha. It's a fairly common Bengali name. And I was still one of his first ten disciples. And just because the system was such a well-oiled machine, he didn't really have to work too hard to make disciples. It wasn't like he was going around making disciples. It was much more like, like the organization was taking care of my spiritual life. And I did a lot of work and then sometimes wrote to him, but it didn't feel like he was really doing a lot of instruction in person. Partly also because I was quite unable to actually talk to him because I was completely starstruck. I kept in touch with him, of course, after I went to Sweden. In Sweden there were quite a few women disciples of his because in Sweden there was the publishing house and he had a lot of uh, intellectual disciples. So they kind of pooled there and... It became a melting pot of all sorts of intellectuals. So by the time I was in Sweden, it was too far to go to big festivals on a Bavarian farm where I would meet him a couple of times a year. But I got to go to his birthday celebrations in Poland on the ferry. And my God, I didn't like Poland very much. And I really tried. Um, So none of the times I actually met him in person were very memorable. I, of course, always attributed that to how 
fallen I was and how bad I felt about being such a horrible person and he really never said much and he didn't look me in the eye of course because he was a young monk and I did all the work of feeling awful and yeah being very I think you're supposed to be very humble but I just really felt that I was a bad person and completely useless and then after I moved to Reading in the UK I still went to some of his birthday celebrations in Oxford and I say birthday celebration as if it's some kind of party but it really wasn't guru birthdays are very strange ceremonies so the guru sits on a throne as if it was an altar and accepts all sorts of offerings and of course that includes food that includes the guru's feet being washed and yes you drink the water after and and the feet are not just being washed in water but lots of things and flower garlands uh, around the guru and as many as you can fit and of course he would hand them on to people so there was there was no end to flower garlands and then there were other offerings in terms of people would read something they'd written. And I was very proud one year, actually. Proud probably isn't the right word. But I was spontaneously stood up and said something lovely about all my god sisters. And god sisters is a specific word for the girls and women who are disciples of the same guru. So I just wanted to appreciate my sisters and of course I was very emotional because it was spontaneous and and I did say what I really felt and in that sense I was very pleased with myself I think you can say and of course I was crying because I never do anything that's coming from the heart without crying I think there's something I always wonder why I cry so much when when I'm emotional but maybe there's something to be said about being in an environment where emotions were absolutely poo-pooed, like you can't even imagine how much, and then you learn to do things out of an authentic and actual real emotion that you're having in that moment. That experience is just so unbelievably wonderful that you just have to cry because it feels, it, it, it just feels amazing. And so I still do that sometimes because I still feel that amazement at, at feeling something and then expressing it <laughs> it's so lovely um, yeah there's because in that movement there's no place for spontaneous devotion or emotion it's a machine you're supposed to work and if you don't then you will be a disturbance and nobody will care like you're not loved for who you are you're loved for what you can contribute and yes and if you don't comply, then that love that you thought you felt back from the person you loved will very quickly be withdrawn. So, yes, that's, that's when I first felt emotions again. And then, of course, those emotions were still in connection with, you know, Guru and all that. So after I left Reading, I stopped going to Oxford. But I still met him when he came through London. One day in the British Library, I introduced him to my friend Samarendra and we had a chat about the human rights abuses and environmental crimes committed by one of the richest patrons of the movement, an industrialist in mining and metals. And he, my guru, or ex-guru now, chose to talk about that in the lecture in the main London temple on Soho Street the next morning. And I, damn it, I was late, but he told me very proudly once I had 
gotten there for breakfast. And that was hilarious because, of course, all the devotees there knew he, who he was talking about. And it was a tiny, tiny scandal. And <laughs> I think he had some repercussions because the next thing I knew, he wrote me a message on Skype that he had found a blog post where I had spoken badly about his guru. And that why, that's why he doesn't care about that issue now anymore. And that's the last time we talked. And I replied that I would have liked to stay in touch in case you ever need a normal person to talk to. But clearly not. And I would have stayed in touch with him if he hadn't broken up with me like that. And I love that guy. I just love that guy so much. And of course love doesn't matter if you don't comply. And defending your humanity and individuality against the horrible influence of his guru who tells his disciples that it is okay to belittle women. Yeah, no, you can't, with good conscience, keep that in your life. And a few months later after that, he had taken Sanya as the final order of a monk. And I have been told by a god sister that he did that to show his devotion to his guru. And yes, lovely listeners, in that world... Love to a long-dead guru is more important than love for a living person who has loved you for most of their life. And everything in my recovery happened very slowly and over many years, and I'm sort of grateful for that. And talking about love, I should probably also talk about the many unhealthy attempts at something resembling kind of normal love. But my God, that's for a very depressing conversation over a glass of wine, if any of you are interested. I have another story that happened just a few days ago where a woman wrote an open letter to all the god brothers and god sisters. I'm still on the mailing list, of course. And she she was very sure of herself and how she felt about him. And that's not a very attractive trait for a Hare Krishna. But she was very troubled and she wrote and that she was very troubled and uh, I wrote back to her that look you're going to get in so much trouble for writing this but I want you to know that it's not your fault you're strong and and you should should be happy and a day later the guru then wrote an open letter to the whole community and they were wor- there were words in that letter that I just couldn't believe So this is how he writes about a person who has devoted her entire life to him. My experience with this person is that she is a disturbance in the company of devotees in a rather subtle way by her standoffish tendency, which apparently is part of her show of having a special relationship with her guru. I feel no more responsibility for her as a disciple. And... There are all, all the time. This is, she does not take my direction, and I now do not care about her anymore. And and then a lot of stuff happens in direct mails. And then there's one more public message from a god sister, who I always thought was the most kind, sweetest person. And she writes, thusly, it is difficult to not get angry after your long letter full of your own concoctions about your relationships with my Guru Maharaj. 
First of all, how dare you to cause this disturbance to our spiritual master when you know that his soul is in complete surrender to Srila Prabhupada and his mission. Uh, a bit more, a bit more. There are many problems in your life because you have so many issues yourself that it seems need mending. What I am getting from your letter is delusion that comes from your suppressed sexual desire. Sorry about my straightforwardness. Our spiritual master is above your delusional, twisted conception of your relationship with him. You cannot understand the mind of a pure devotee, neither can I. None of those are not pure in heart. I cannot sense any pure love from you to our spiritual master, but only mental exercise of words and goal you want to achieve. End quote. So this is, I mean... I mean, how even so? There's 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 a person who's your peer, who's your friend, who's supposed to be your sister, in in pain, and you write stuff like this, and it's only possible because you believe a hundred percent that you're right and they're wrong, and that's the whole that is the whole condescending nature of this thing that just doesn't allow any real emotion or real love, and. I think I'm talking about this because for me it took me until last year to finally sort of get any of that really to really look at that and and it came out in one in one concentrated almost like a blob that suddenly came up because before that I had been writing about this stuff of course but it either came out like you know robotic this happened and then that happened or full of sarcasm. But I don't think I'd allowed myself to really feel the impact of this, you know, years and years and years of misplaced, real emotion on my side at least. And of course the hurt of it all being so pointless and so you know, the person who you love absolutely is not able and not willing and not even in a position to, to respond in any any real way. And, of course, I wrote a poem. <laughs> and I'm not going to read that to you now. It's not going to happen. Uh, but you can read it. There's a link. Um, and I wrote, that, I, I, I wrote that poem, like, in one piece. And it was a real... Again, I was crying and crying and crying because I do that. Um, and because, like I said, I don't, I never really believed that I could, f- you know, my emotions were real, right? This whole thing taught me that all of this is oh, bullshit, you know? And and then I suddenly started to feel again, but then I thought, oh, I'm worse at feeling emotions than everybody else. And, and and then I wrote a thing, and then when I read it and people reacted with emotion, that was, again, that was such a huge step. I read it at a, at a poetry workshop, and people cried, and I cried. And that, you know, to, this, this, how, to have this, this connection with other people, where you share, you, you know, these feelings. Because I can, you know, like, I still feel like all my other feelings that I feel are somewhat... You know, yeah, I do normal stuff, but this is this is where all my all my cares lay for 
in so many years of my life, so this is stuff. And it's very difficult for me to make other people, you know, sort of that's, that's what I'm trying to do here. Um, to make other people feel that and, you know, maybe not feel it, but empathize. So, yeah, have the poem um, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>